Well, we are continuing uh, in our look at the book of Nehemiah. I'll I'll be honest with you in saying that um, um, I probably should have planned for us to stay in Nehemiah a lot longer than what we are going to. Um, um, it's It's been even richer than what I had imagined, and so I've been delighted with it. I don't know if you have been or not, but I'm not going to ask you because I don't want to hear what you say. And so uh, in case it hasn't been, but I have really found it to be kind of really enriching, and that continues today. In fact, uh, I'm going to make the very uncharacteristic move. I did this a little bit last week as well, I suppose, uh, which is that I'm not going to, uh, we're not going to read the whole chapter. Uh, we're just going to read the first around 15 cha- uh, uh, verses. Uh, there are more verses, but as I got into it, I realized that if I really preached on all of those things, um, really, well, it just wasn't going to be good. So I am, uh, so we're going to, we're just going to look primarily at the first 15 verses, but for your home groups and for other things, I would encourage you to continue to read on uh, 16 through 24, those next nine verses, uh, and hear this remarkable story. So let me just briefly say, uh, if you haven't been here over the last few weeks, Nehemiah was a cupbearer uh, for the king. Uh, he then went back to Jerusalem and he was going to rebuild the wall. The wall had been crumbled, it had been torn down, it had been desolated and decimated, I should say. And uh, so Nehemiah went back and, um, and, and he cast this vision that had been given him from the Lord. And so the people said, okay, this is great, let's do this. And they had begun to re- rebuild the walls. We said last week there are lots of different people with different vocations um, who were there um, um, to help to build the wall. Uh, and so this week, we kind of go from that kind of larger view, as we'll talk about a 20,000-foot uh, view, down to a little bit more about what it looked like, um, this kind of th- the actual building of the wall uh, and the challenges that they encountered along that. And so that's how we come to this Nehemiah chapter 4, verse one. Here's what Nehemiah says. Now when Sanballat, uh, who were one of the enemies, as we've heard about, heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and mocked the Jews. He said in the presence of his associates and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, that stone wall they are building, any fox going up on it would break it down. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their taunt back on their own heads and give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sins be blotted out from your sight, for they have hurled insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. But Judah said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, and there is too much rubbish so that we are unable to work on the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see anything before we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. 
And when the Jews who lived near them came, they said to us ten times, from all the places where they live, they will come up against us. So, in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in open, spa- in open places, I stationed the people according to their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And after I looked these things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your kin, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that their plot was known to us, and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray once again this Sunday, as we have over the previous Sundays, that you would speak to us even now. Though this story took place so long ago, we pray that you would give us wisdom as to how it speaks to us in 2019, right here in the middle of central Indiana. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So if you were here last Sunday, you may recall that what we talked about was that while it was certainly pretty remarkable uh, that, that, that Nehemiah was able to get people to buy into this vision that God had given to him, to buy into this vision of rebuilding a wall. The people were, were, were really kind of devastated at this point. They didn't know what was going to happen next. Things were not going well. And so he encouraged their hearts and he got them to buy into the vision. But last week what we said, what was perhaps even more miraculous than the fact that they bought into the vision is that Nehemiah laid out a plan and the people had actually gotten behind the plan. One of the things that we said was that sometimes it's really easy to get people excited one moment, but to actually fulfill and complete the plan, that's a whole nother ball of wax. That's a whole different thing. But again, we looked at it kind of broadly last Sunday. And this Sunday in the fourth chapter, it's almost like Nehemiah just gets us a lot closer or even goes back a little bit. And he begins to describe a a, a series of scenes that in many ways reveals why it is so difficult to have our plans go from the genesis and the thought, right, to actual completion. Here's the thing about visions that people have, about, uh, about hopes and dreams that people have, which is that they are almost always different than the way things currently are, right? That's kind of what a vision is. You don't really get a vision about, hey, I got, a, I got this great vision. I want you to hear it. Here's, here's, are you ready for it? We're going to keep doing things as we have always been doing them. There is no person who is called a visionary who says, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. There's no vision with that, right? There's always going to be some kind of change. And whenever you have some kind of change, there are 
always going to be an inordinate amount of obstacles that get in your way. Whether that's something that we do as a church, whether that's something you do as a disciple, whether it's something you do as a business person or, 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 or as a, as a, in a relationship, whatever it is, no matter what vision or plans that you have, there will always be obstacles that arise. And Nehemiah 4 does this kind of remarkable job for those who have ears to hear of, of giving us a series and helping us to see what some of these common obstacles are that get in the way of fulfilling a plan. So let's take a look at this for just a few minutes. Uh, Andy Stanley does a nice job of kind of looking at these questions and these comments that the enemies, Senballat and others, bring up uh, and, and how they get in the way. So let's look, at, let's look at the first pair here. What are these feeble Jews doing and will they restore things? So what's going on here? Well, What's going on here, of course, is that Sambalit is kind of saying things. And you know when you ask a question, then you're hoping that, that it kind of catches on so that everybody hears it. This is what he's doing. And he's, he, he's beginning to sow seeds of doubt in the minds of the people of Jerusalem as to whether or not they have the character, the ability, and the know-how to actually complete the plan. See, here's something that always happens. At some point in the midst of the plan, it almost always happens, whether it's just your own personal plan, whether you are a leader trying to lead a group of folks, is that at some point you can mark it down without question, you are going to wonder whether or not you can actually do it. At some point, you are going to question whether you are the right person. At some point, you begin, you think, oh yeah, I got this. This is no problem. Let's just say it's a marathon, right? For, I got this. This is no problem. I promise you, unless you are an elite runner, and even then they probably do, I would not know that. But at some point, you will say, I can't do it. There is no way I can actually finish this. I am a feeble Jew. I am a weak Gentile. It doesn't matter who you are. At some point, you will begin to question whether or not you can do it. And far too often, when we think about plans, we think, oh, this is going to go great, and we're going to be able to finish this, no problem. And as soon as you begin to question yourself, then all of a sudden you begin to think, well, I shouldn't be questioning myself. I must be too weak. There's no way this is going to work. But not only that, they say, will they restore things? Like, can you actually do it? I, I talked about this maybe a year ago or so, that in the midst of kind of my, uh, my, my, my studies on, on leadership and leading change, uh, that what all the kind of the gurus say is that one of the best things that leaders can do is to use these, th these three words. What are those three words? I don't know. But you know what? When you're leading a group of people in something that is causing anxiety and fear and is bringing change, do you know what those people do not want their leader to say? I don't know. Right? It's an incredibly scary thing to be honest about. But here's the reality. If you are leading people into a place where they have never been before, if you are trying to do something you've never done before, there will come a time when you have to admit to yourself and to others that you may not know what the next step is. Now, you don't say, I don't know, so I'm going to quit. But you can say, I don't know, but we'll have to try to figure this out together. And if there come moments when you think I shouldn't be saying, I don't know, you will quit. It's okay to give yourself permission to not know. And so they bring up these things like, can you really 
do it? This is a question that Symbalat is asking. And then he goes on. He has these next two questions. Let's look at those. It says, will they sacrifice and will they finish it in a day? What is this asking? What is, he trying to, what is he trying to sow within the people? Here's what he's trying to do. He's, he's asking this question. Are they actually going to be able to endure? Will they keep going or will they quit as soon as it begins to grow difficult? Here's the problem with great visions and great plans. I want you to hear this. Is that they are always tiring and long and difficult. Always. When we think about doing them from the beginning, we think, oh, it's going to be a little bit hard, but it will be fine. No, no, no. It will always be tiring and long and difficult. How many people have you talked to? I've talked to quite a few people who have said from time to time, you know what? Let me tell you this. If I had known just how difficult If I had known just how difficult it was going to be to achieve this thing, I never would have started. Now, that doesn't mean they're not glad that they are where they are, but it does mean that there's no way, they said, that I could have ever known just how hard this was going to be. Right? And so what do you oftentimes hear about businesses? People say whenever you start a business, it almost always takes twice as long as you expected, costs twice as much as you estimated, and you are not the exception. Right? It always is going to take longer than what you think. And if you go into it, I've seen people do this, if you go into it and you think, oh yeah, I should be able to just kind of finish this, no problem, it's going to be fine. As soon as it begins to take longer or cost more than what you thought it would, or as soon as you think you're the exception, then you will want to quit. This is why most plans don't succeed. Well, what's the last thing that we say here? Here's Sam Bally. He has this one last question. He says, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? What I really like, actually, because right after this, uh, right attached to this is Tobiah the Ammonite. And he says, because it's the same kind of thing, he says this. And for some reason, I always think about Hans and Franz. Uh, remember them? Uh, and he's like, oh, if a little girly fox got up on the wall, it would crumble, right? Is that, no? Okay, so there's this sense, right? Do you see what he's doing? He's mocking them. He's saying a fox. You guys have seen foxes, right? You know what foxes are not? They're not big, right? And he's saying if a little fox got up on that wall, it would crumble. He's mocking them to say this thing that you're doing, it's pure rubbish, literally, It is rubbish. Now, here's the thing. Architects, within the last two centuries, they have begun, architects, no, archaeologists, uh, they have begun to look at, they excavated some of Nehemiah's wall. And do you know what they said about Nehemiah's wall? It was rubbish. It was not a very good wall. It was not sturdy. It was not stable. It was a bad wall. And why, why wouldn't it be? Do you know what they did? By and large, they just took rocks from the previous wall that crumbled, and they just began to kind of build it up on top of it. Right? It wasn't a great wall. Because why? Well, here's the thing. Now, Nehemiah, he could have done this. He could have said, mm, what we need are some blueprints. 
And so they said, okay, let's get all these blueprints. Okay, no, 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 like this and gone to this committee. I'm like, okay, what about this? Okay, then he could have brought in the architects. This is the architects. Oh, let's look at this. Okay, that's good. All right, all right. So what are we going to do? All right, here we go. We got we to clear away all the old rubbish. Okay, let's bring in all the wheelbarrows. Let's do all this, you know. Boop, boop, boop. We're bringing things in. We're getting things out, right? We're doing all that. Okay, now what do we need? We need some good farm brick. Let's get some brick. All right, we got to find a brick. Let's get a brick. By the time they did all of that, guess what happened? Or guess what doesn't happen? The plans are never completed. There's no way with the enemies surrounding them and with the already broken spirit of the people, there's no way they would have ever been able to finish it. So what Nehemiah says is, well, this is as good as it gets. So let's build off of what we have. Remember that the quote is oftentimes attributed to Voltaire. He says that what we have to make sure is, is that the perfect does not become the enemy of the good. That the perfect does not become the enemy of the good. This is something that church folk can really hear. Because church folk, and I will include myself in this, we are so afraid that things are going to fail. We're afraid to take risk. We're afraid that people aren't going to like it. And so we wait and we wait and we wait until we have the perfect plan. And oh, we've got the perfect plan. And it takes so long that by the time we have the perfect plan, everyone has lost interest. They have moved on. Nehemiah could have come up with the perfect plan and it would have been ideal. I mean, you can just picture it would have been majestic like Herod's walls. It would have been incredible. But it never would have gotten done. And instead, you have a wall that may not look that great, but guess what it is? It's not a trick question. Yeah, it's a wall. It served its purpose. Right? And so, so we have all these things. And again, this is just these great questions that they keep bringing up. Sowing seeds of discord. People know, critics know how to kill a plan. They're really good at it. And do you know what happens to a leader when he or she hears a bunch of criticism about what it is that they're doing? Do you know what happens when they begin to get fearful about the fact that whatever those critics are saying may begin to kind of percolate all through the community? Do you know what happens to those leaders? They get mad. They get scared. They get afraid. They get angry. And this is exactly what we see with Nehemiah. It's kind of interesting. In fact, it's kind of confusing when you read through it or just hear it because Nehemiah is just kind of telling all of this story about what's happening and then immediately he goes into a prayer. He doesn't say, and then Nehemiah prayed or and then I prayed. He goes straight to the prayer. In fact, uh, uh, one person, Derek Kidner, he says, you know what, it's almost like he can kind of think through these things, you know, a little bit like they're kind of in the distance, but but here's what happens. When you are criticized again and again, guess what you never do? You never forget. And in a moment, most of us who have been criticized, you can go right back to where it was, where it happened. You can almost feel the rage and the hurt and the pain of that time. And Nehemiah seems to do that immediately. And he says a prayer. And it is not a fuzzy, sentimental Prayer. Did you hear the prayer? Let's see here. This is how the message says this. Oh, listen to us, dear God. We're so despised. Boomerang, he says, there which are the critics ridicule on their heads. Have their enemies cart them off as war trophies to a land of no return. 
Don't forgive their iniquity. Don't wipe away their sin. They've insulted the builders. We're teaching our children this prayer right now, Megan and I are. It's very, very cute. Now, when, when, when scholars, when, I, when they hear this prayer, I mean, they are aghast. And understandable so, but they're just like, oh, no, 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 stop, no, do not do this, bad Nehemiah. Which is easy to do if you're caught up in your little corner office, you know, with a far distance away from the actual world. And I want to be very clear, I am not suggesting that we make as a normal practice a prayer that God will not forgive other people's sins. Okay, let's be very clear. This is descriptive, it's not prescriptive, right? They're simply describing things. To be sure, a healthy person will not be consistently praying that their enemies will be carted away like a war trophy, okay? But I think most of us probably know this is not that Christian. But at the same time, I want us to also be very clear that just like here in this prayer, just like prayers that we see in the Psalms, it is also incredibly important that we can be brutally honest with God, even about our desires, even if those desires are things which may not seem as if they are the most noble. And this is exactly, of course, what Nehemiah does. One of the great things to see is that Nehemiah doesn't actually just go and say that to his critics. He begins by saying it to God. But, but there's, an important, there's an importance in being able to be honest. And there's an importance, quite frankly, in being able to not suppress that anger, to suppress that, that, that fear, but to actually offer it up to God. There is a gift of being able to move forward when you are able to offer up your pain and your fears. And Nehemiah was fearful here. Make no mistake that all of a sudden everything was going to go off the rails in offering that up. When I, was, uh, when I was 12 or 13, I can't remember the exact age, um, I was uh, just a couple years into uh, uh, my parents' divorce. And, and so I was dealing with a bunch of anger, a lot of rage, um, uh, a lot of dislike. And much of that was projected to my father. And, and so um, I, I, I had been counseling for a little while. And so the counselor said, okay, here's what I want you to do, Jerry. I want you to go home. And I, I want you to get a Sharpie, and I want you to get a pillowcase that you don't care about, and I want you to just start writing things on it, okay? I just want you to start writing things on it. Start writing things about your dad that, 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 that maybe bother you. He's like, you can even write in if you want. You can even write in a curse word. I, I wrote, I, I think I did it, but I did it very small so that God couldn't see it, okay? You got to be careful, Okay. But I wrote all of those things, right? All of that. And, and, and it was, you know, I just began to write that. And then he said, okay, then put it in a pillow and then just start wailing on that thing. Just start throwing it and flipping it and punching it and kicking it. Do whatever you want to that particular thing, right? Just get that rage out. And I can remember, even to this day, I can remember the room I was in, my bedroom. I can remember the bed. I can remember the window that was right there. And I just remember almost the joy of just in some say enacting that out. Now, I don't know if that's good counseling or not. I don't really, it's not really the point of this. The point is this though, that I was able to actually be able to just get out 
the pain that I had been feeling. I was able to, to release that, not suppress it and act like it wasn't there, but I was able to release it in some way. And because of that, as a part of the healing process, I was able to kind of let go of it. It doesn't mean that I forgot everything and all of a sudden I was perfect and whole. It's as if nothing happened. But it did was enough for me be, to me to be able to keep moving forward. And I think that one of the great things that Nehemiah does here is, is, is Brueggemann talks about this, is that when you offer something up, it is as if you are relinquishing it so that you can then begin to move forward. Because what I have seen is people's lives be derailed because they cannot let go of some way that they have been wronged in their lives. Most of us have been wronged in some form or fashion. And those who are able to in some way let go of that, to give that up, those are the people more often than not who can keep moving forward with the plans for their lives. And when we offer it up and say, God, you take this. Here's what I'd like you to do. You probably will do something else, but here's what I would like for you to do, if I can be so honest, are the ones that can then continue into the work. And that's exactly what we see with Nehemiah because he prays a prayer and then he begins to act. In verse six, right after the prayer, he says, so we rebuilt the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work. I'm, this is, I want you to write this down. One of the greatest reasons, because this is gonna be really good. One of the greatest reasons why plans fail, are you ready? Get your pen. Is because people stop working. I heard a pen. Thank you. Thomas Edison has this great line. Maybe you've heard it. He says that most people miss out on opportunities because it's dressed in overalls and it looks like work. Most people miss out on opportunities because it's dressed in overalls and it looks like work. Here's the reality. It is easy to simply stop working because you grow weary. I have seen it numerous times. You see it a lot. You see it in relationships. You see it in marriages. And this is not to say, because I know there are people who have worked really hard at their marriages and it just simply were not able to bring peace to it. So I get that. So I want you to hear that. But I also want you to hear that when I, especially when I'm meeting with young brides or future brides and grooms and they're all excited and they're all starry-eyed and I don't think they really listen to what I'm saying anyways, but what I try to tell them is it is going to take work. A marriage, you may miss out on this, a good marriage is dressed in overalls and it looks like work. It ain't all candlelight and fine dining, am I right? <laughs> One of you's got a lot of work tonight, I don't know what to say. And this is the reality. Right, this is it right now. And when we cast vision, we may not be able to talk through all that, but here's the truth. It is going to take work. And the people, Nehemiah said, they had a mind to work. And they worked the 
plan. They kept going and kept going and kept going. But let's be clear, just because you decide to work hard does not mean that everything magically becomes easy. That's what we see again here. This fourth chapter is nothing but hills and valleys, hills and valleys. That's what happens when you have a vision and then you carry out the plan. It never just works perfectly. No, no, it goes up and then it comes down. Then you think you got it and then you don't got it. You get it and then there's no way it's going to work. It just goes back and forth. That's what you see here. What does Nehemiah do? He says they had a mind to work, but then there's another issue. And so what does he do? He prays and he acts. And I can't talk about this very long because we don't have time, but prayer and action. We talked about this in a couple chapters ago. Prayer and action. Nehemiah does a great job. He doesn't just pray. He doesn't just act. He leads with prayer and then he keeps acting. But there are still challenges. And Nehemiah in this chapter faces one of the greatest challenges. You expect criticism from the outside world. But the most difficult criticism, the most difficult obstacles are usually those that happen within your own community. And this is what we see in the fourth chapter. You may have missed it. It gets confusing at times. The people of Judah, which were the people in Jerusalem, they begin to say this. This is the message. So soon word was going around in Judah. This means the community, the people of Jerusalem are saying this. The builders are pooped. The rubbish piles up. We're in over our heads. We can't build this wall. And all this time our enemies were saying they don't know what hit them. Or they won't know. Before they know it, we'll be at their throats, killing them right and left. That will put a stop to the work. The Jews who were their neighbors, right? These are the ones who live outside the, the, the walls. They kept reporting. They have us surrounded. They're going to attack. If we've heard it once, we've heard it ten times. Here's Nehemiah. He was so excited. Remember just a couple of chapters ago? Here's the vision. And they say, go for it. And now they're more pooped. It's all this rubbish. And they have real fears. They're surrounded literally on all four sides by their enemies. Like, we can't do this. We're, oh, it's all going. We're all going to die. I mean, this is literally what they're saying. And you know what happens. Fear and anxiety, they are contagious. You've probably seen this. Quite frankly, we see this right now in our society. It is contagious. People are drawn to it. It's almost like they think they get life out of being afraid. Right? And so they get drawn to that, and everyone says, oh, no, we're all going to die. You know, it's, it's chicken little. The world is falling. And one of the things that leaders have to do, and this is incredibly difficult, but one of the things that leaders have to do is when people are running all around and they're crazy, they have to do what Todd Bolsinger points out, which is that not only is fear and anxiety contagious, but so is being calm. So that when everybody else is running around and they're just like, oh, it's all going down. We're pooped. There's too much rubbish. Nehemiah doesn't begin to say, you're right, and begin to run along with them. He is calm. Till at some point someone stops and says, wait a second. What's wrong with this person? And why isn't he running around? And what does Nehemiah do? He does two things. 
he figures out a way to put people in the gap, to have them have the white wep- right weapons. He begins to think through this intellectually. Okay, I want you to go here. You go here. This is what we're going to do. Shh, I, know, I know you're afraid. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to do. You go here. But he also is smart enough to realize that we are not wholly rational. We are not just mind people. We are heart people. And what a good leader knows is that he or she from time to time have to have a come to Jesus moment. When they say, let's remember why we are doing this. And this is exactly what he does. And he begins to call out their hearts. Let me just read this. What does he say here? What does he say here? Where did I put this? Does he say anything? Yes, he does. He says this. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your kin, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He's beginning to kind of speak into their hearts. And when I thought about this, and I just want you to see, I know it may be hard to understand, but I want you to watch this clip because it's from Braveheart. And anytime you can watch something from Braveheart, you should. And even though it's hard to understand Mel Gibson's Scottish accent because it's not that good, there is writing on there. But let me remind you, here is Braveheart. And he's about to take on the Englishmen, right? The dastardly Englishmen. And, and, and he's about to take them on. And the Scots who are with him, his brothers and arms they are scared they want to run away and he is trying to gird their hearts and here's what he says to them I am William Wallace and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny you've come to fight as three men and three men you are What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? <laughs> right? Against that? No! We will run! And we will live! Alright? Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! to go fight (laughs) right when you're watching this especially in the theater when you watch this for the first time I mean it was everything you were looking for an Englishman right I'm just kidding actually we have one Englishman but he's going through a great banquet he's not here so we're okay (laughs) but what does he do he knows that they are caught up in anxiety I love it when he says will we fight and they're all like no right this is exactly what Nehemiah was seeing right 
But what does he do? He reminds them of why they are there. He reminds them that this is about more than just one particular battle. And even their particular life, he says, this is about a larger framework. This is why we're here. And then he looks to their future. And he says, think about what you will think about in the future when you are on your deathbed. What will you want to have accomplished? See, Nehemiah, what does he say here? Remember, I can't remember what he says here. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. When he says that, he's not just saying, do you remember the Lord? He's great. He's awesome. He's reminding them of the vision that they had been given just days or weeks earlier. Oh, that's right. And then he says, fight for your wives, for your sons and your daughters. What we said last week, fight not just for what is good for you, but for those who are coming into the future. See, one of the things that we have to remember, sisters and brothers, I don't care what the plan is for you. It doesn't matter whether it's something that we are trying to do as a church and we're trying to make disciples and it's not easy to make disciples. It's fun to talk about, but it's really hard to do. I don't care if it's you trying to love your literal neighbor and it's a struggle to do so. It doesn't matter whether it's you and your own business that you're trying to get going or whether it's a difficult relationship that you're in. What you need to do from time to time and when I'm praying, we can do as we come in here on Sunday mornings is to be reminded of why we are here. To be reminded that this is about much more than just me, Jerry, or you, whoever you may be. This is about us. This is about the Lord. This is about the future generations. That it's not just about that. But then we also have to remember that it is not easy. That all of us will struggle All of us will wrestle with whether or not we really can sacrifice, with whether or not we're really strong, with whether or not we're just too tired, whether or not we have too many doubts. And in those moments, we need to be there for one another. One of the things that Nehemiah does is he helps them to remember why they are there. And then he is completely honest about how difficult it will be to get all the way to the finish line. I hope and I pray, sisters and brothers, that we can be a people who know the vision that we have, what God is calling us to as as a community and as individuals, and that we will keep working towards that. May we have a passion, and then may we be willing to endure, no matter the obstacles that are in our way. May that be our prayer. Amen? Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would give us strength. You know that you have a vision that you have given to us, each of us, Lord, as a church, as individuals. What we need, Lord, is not just to know that vision. We need to be reminded of it. We need to know the why. And then we need to have the courage and the endurance and the strength to keep going. May we be a community that supports, that encourages, and that challenges each other. That we may go further than what we ever imagined we could. It's in your name we pray. Amen.